Good morning to everybody. Nice to see you this morning. If you're here as a visitor, we make you especially welcome. We're going to read from the New Testament and the book of James, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we'll read from uh, verse 6. James here is speaking in in the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 4, warning against worldliness. But in chapter 6 it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's also another uh, verse in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's just pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you for the public reading of your precious, infallible word. As we turn our attention to this message, we would pray at the outset that the voice of man would be silent and the voice of the Spirit of God would minister to each of our hearts, both preacher and hearer. We pray for the presence of the Spirit of God to brood over our service, to apply the word to each of our hearts, and to encourage us, to bless us as we meet together to worship and praise the living God for all his many graces towards us and his blessings to each one. So we commit our time to you now. In his name we pray. Amen. To be a Christian, we must experience grace in our lives. If we have no grace, then we have no salvation. The words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament spring to mind. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works that anyone should boast, Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. Isn't it wonderful how the Lord God saves a sinner? When we look around us today, we're all different. We've come from different backgrounds. Some brought up in Christian homes some in godless homes, yet we have been brought together and we have been saved in a wonderful way which God works in us. He does it in a way that none of us can boast of ourselves. He knows our feeble minds. He knows we would have taken the words of that famous world song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's how the world thinks this morning. They do it their own way. Their own way to glory. But the thing about the grace of God is it's an amazing grace. 
We've just sang it, have we not? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but we're here this morning. We can see with our spiritual eyes. We were blind, but now we can see. There is almost no other greater word in the scriptures than that of the word grace. And I want us to look at some points this morning. Firstly, how is this grace given? How is grace ministered to each one of us? If we were to define grace in maybe four or five words, we could say something like God is for us or uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. But let's move on from there and look at four ways that the Bible underlines grace. And grace covers much more than just salvation, the salvation of a sinner. People might not know it today, they might not believe it, but God is gracious to them every day that they live, for he gives them common grace. He gives them common grace every day that they breathe. Does the psalmist not say in verse 9 of chapter 145, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. The smallest bird, the tiniest animal, the most microscopic tropical fish in the Pacific Ocean, all are met by our eternal and gracious God. They all exist and they survive by his grace. Oh yes, many do not respond to the grace of God, but they are certainly recipients of the common grace. In that letter, that uh, verse that we read from 1 Timothy 4 verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people. So how do we we open up that verse? He is the saviour of all people. Verse 10 is obviously a very crucial verse and one that demands maybe more investigation. God is the saviour of all men. What does it mean? It is evident, is it not, that God is not the saviour of all men in the evangelical sense of saving them from sin and giving them eternal life because that would be an unbiblical truth. It would be an unbiblical doctrine. It would be teaching of universalism, meaning that all men will be eventually saved because Christ died for sinners and we're all sinners but then in that second part of that verse 10 that we read, it says, especially to those that believe. So how do we explain then that God is the saviour of all men? If we were to take more time in detail what the word saviour means, we would discover that fundamentally the meaning of the word saviour is preserver. 
or it could be deliverer. And if we were to apply Paul's words here with these definitions in mind, then it all makes sense. Because God in his grace, in his common grace, is saving man every day. He's saving him from illness. He's saving them from starvation. He's saving them from error. Every moment of good in a person's life is possible because God is saving man from the forces of evil. Yes, there's many kind people in our world. We often hear of murderers and rapists and shootings, all kinds of evil and ungodliness, but there are kind. There are generous people around. And every element of rightness is possible because God in his grace is saving man daily from utter and complete corruption. Hendrickson says, He, God, provides his creatures with food. He keeps them alive. He often delivers them from ills and diseases and famine and war and poverty. And the list goes on and on. He is their preserver. He is their deliverer. He is their saviour. So this is the common grace of God. And it's poured out upon man every day that they live. Regardless if they have faith or not. The very words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 and verse 45 sum it up to the note. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 45. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God pours his common grace upon every creature, every man without distinction, upon the downright sinner, upon the downright ungodless man or woman, as well as the upright saint. And again, we, the saints of God, are reminded, are we not, and exhorted not to be envious of the wicked. Our second point is covenant grace. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans 5 verse 2 when he says, this grace in which we now stand, or sit as you are. We sit here this morning in covenant grace. The Lord has done it all at Calvary. And we as sinners saved by grace can rejoice this morning in the God of our salvation. Unlike common grace, this is not given indiscriminately to all men, but only those who God calls and causes to receive the free gift of salvation. One of the first records in the Bible regarding graces in Genesis is it not in chapter 6, verse 8, when it says, Noah found grace, or found favor rather, 
which is another word for grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor translates from the Hebrew word chen, which has the same meaning as grace, and the immediate result was that Noah had physical salvation. It may surprise you that in the New Testament, we cannot find anywhere that the word grace is used by the Lord Jesus. Yet he really had no need to because he was a very personification of grace. John himself wrote it in John 1.17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the word grace is a translation of the Greek word charis, and it will help us to grasp its meaning in terms of salvation. If we look at certain verses in the Bible, Paul says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Paul uses that word, does he not? Gift, which means from Greek, charisma, meaning a gift that is free, it's unmerited. It's in direct contrast to wages. The wages of sin is death. Wages which are worked for, earned, deserved. Those of us who work, we work hard in our jobs. Well, some of us work hard. <clears throat> I'm saying that from a personal point of view. But none of us deserve the grace of God. None of us. Not one, not one sitting here this morning deserves the grace, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul reminds us there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one person. His grace is free. It's undeserved. His grace is native. It's not, it's native, but the native is given. It's given to us freely. When we look back in history and remind ourselves of the many who were saved by the grace of God, there is none greater than the author of the hymn that we sang, Amazing Grace. John Newton, a, a deserter, a slave trader, ungodly man. And the turning point came in that storm in 1948 on the ship, the Greyhound, where he got converted and the grace of the living God entered his heart and his life. And that's why he wrote this hymn. And he went on to be a great influence in the William Wilberforce in the abolition of the slave trade. And he wrote this tremendous hymn. Oh yeah, it was in the 1980s. It was number one in the charts here when they played it with the bagpipes. And many would sing it. But did they really know what they're singing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind. Oh, there's many blind people today that would sing that and don't really know the grace of God. Our third point is continuing grace. 
This is the God-given help that every Christian requires every day that they live. If we are to counter the devastating forces of evil and the old nature within our own hearts warring against the new nature, then we need this continuing grace. I need the continuing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word give is mentioned twice in that uh, verse that we read in James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. God opposes the brown, but gives grace to the humble. It's there for a reason. The verb give comes from the Greek word didoson, which implies a giving which never ends. It reminds me of the time when we visited Niagara Falls and we went into the Maid of the Mist and you stood there and you watched Niagara Falls, the millions of millions of millions of water pouring over. That's a picture of God's grace. It's never ending. It's never ending his Covenant grace, his continuing grace. It's a picture of grace of God in our lives. That's why the writer to the Hebrews in the last verse of chapter 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in times of need. Grace for daily needs. There is daily grace. Grace for sudden needs. There is sudden grace. Grace for overwhelming needs. There is overwhelming grace. Annie Flint wrote a hymn. It's from an old hymn book that we used to use in our previous church. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more grace and strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth. And giveth again. <clears throat> Finally, how is this grace governed as we draw to a close? Well, it's governed in two ways mentioned in verse 6. God opposes the proud. Pride's a terrible sin, you know. Pride is a terrible sin. Probably one of the most uh, difficult and worst kinds of sin. And the Lord hates it too because it, it's a sin that sets himself up against the Lord in Proverbs 6, Dean verse 5. The arrogant man, the godless man, has the host arrayed against him, whereas God, the humble, godly man, has the host of God encamped around him. So how does God then resist the proud? Try as he will, man's pride will never usurp 
God. For God resists the proud by refusing to speak. Look at the account of the crucifixion in Luke 23. Herod was happy to see Jesus. He'd heard so much about him. He wanted Jesus to perform some miracles. But in verse 8 and 9, it says Jesus gave him no answer. See how King Herod, his arrogance was met by the master's silence. And God resists the proud by ridiculing their schemes. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. That's a tremendous verse. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And God also resists the proud by ruining their success. Look at King Uzziah. Remember, he was amazingly successful as a ruler, a commander-in-chief in Second Chronicles 26, until he was powerful and then his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense, which was exclusively reserved by divine law for the Levitical priests. And God, God warned them in Numbers 18, verse 7, anyone who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. So here was that arrogant, proudful, Uzziah overriding God's law but even as he stood in the sanctuary what happened? The deadly disease of leprosy was gone, was, uh, broke out on his forehead and his reign was finished. Gone. See how God resists the proud? He removes their status. God has the power to give. God has the power to take away. We need to hold everything in humility. Otherwise, we may be forced to leave them in humiliation. Notice, to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must abandon all trust in ourselves and throw our weight upon the mercy of God. The Beatitudes say it lovely to us in verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The word poor translates from the Greek word pitchkus. Does not mean having very little, but having nothing. In grace can only flow into empty hands. The only way into the kingdom of heaven is like what Angus Augustus Top Ladies, well-known hymn states, and we've sang it a few times, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. For he who is least among you is the greatest, Luke 9, verse 48. You know, in Christian circles, we tend to estimate a man by his gifts, his leadership, his oratory, his performance, his knowledge, and so on. But God thinks most of the one who thinks least 
of himself. The humble man. He gives grace. He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Father God, we thank you for your many blessings to each one of us. We thank you for the common grace that is poured out on mankind every day. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your saving grace. There was a time when we couldn't say your saving grace. There was a time, Lord, when we were on that wide and broad road without hope and without Christ. But we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have reached into our hearts. You have taken that stony, hard and godless heart and that you have changed us. And we pray for your continued blessing and each and every one of us that our lives might be sanctified in the remaining days that we live, that we might bring praise and glory and honour to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So continue with us, Lord, as we commit the rest of our time with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.